You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody, to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Barnard. Thank you so much for joining me today. My guest today is the man who kickstarted the Monday Night Wars and turned the wrestling wrestling business upside down, the creator and visionary behind the NWO, and the author of the new book, Grateful, which is out now. Uh, welcome back to the program, WWE Hall of Famer Eric Bischoff. Thank you so much for your time again. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Adam. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I wanted to talk to you. It's a great, great way to tie into the book. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about this because I remember in 2006, you published uh, Controversy Creates Cash. Uh, and then I know on the shows on 83 Weeks, I'm an avid listener. Go ahead and check out adfreeshows.com right now. If you're not subscribed to that, you're missing out on a lot of great stuff. You talk a lot about the Nitro book uh, by Guy Evans, which is a fantastic read. Um, what was the startup process with you and Guy creating this book and kind of tell me a little bit more about how this process tied together. Yeah, I'm going to go back a little further. Um, sure. You know, I didn't know Guy Evans. Actually, Guy Evans reached out to me several years ago and I had forgotten all about it, um, but he reached out to me and wanted to interview me. And I typically don't interview with people writing about WCW because until Guy Evans came along, it was all just trash. It was, you know, it was just garbage written by garbage people pretending to be authors. So I typically, I would just pass, but for whatever reason, I don't know what it was because I barely remember it. I, I said, sure, I'll, I'll do an interview with him. And I was so glad that I did. And I remember the interview because I was like, wow, this cat's not like everybody else. He's actually asking intelligent questions. And I could tell during that interview that he had interviewed other people that were above my pay grade in turn of broadcasting and nobody else had ever done that before. So I was impressed with him, you know, in the initial interview and then time went on. It probably took a year or two for the book to actually come out. And by the time it did, I forgot that I even interviewed with him. And then I, I, I got the book and I'm reading through it and I'm, I was fascinated with the depth of research and the credibility that the book had, because again, Guy interviewed people that I didn't think he could ever get to sit down for an interview. Guy like Bill Burke. Bill Burke is living in a log cabin somewhere in Vermont or Maine or something. You know, I know. But Bill Burke was the president of TBS and as such was very, very involved in ultimately what happened with WCW. Um, a lot of other key executives, some of them whom I had never had a meeting with. That's how far above me they were on that food chain at Turner. And once I realized the quality of research and, and look, it's just work, it's work. And I looked at the work and the research and the quality of it. And I went, wow, this cat's, he's onto something. So I, I got further into the book and I started promoting it. And here's what's funny. There were some things in that book that were less than flattering to me. That's putting it mildly. There were things in that book that I read and I went, oh, 
yeah, but it's true. <laughs> so, you know, I couldn't even get upset about it, right? I was right. embarrassed a little bit, but I couldn't get angry because it was true. And I, I just developed such a, a, a respect for Guy, even though I had never met him in person. And then StarCast, you know, Conrad Thompson's StarCast events came along, and I found myself on a panel with Guy. And Guy is a very humble, and he's not an gregarious, he's not like me. He's not, ah, you know, he's not running off at the mouth. He's a very typically British, sophisticated, polite, controlled individual, which is the opposite of me. <laughs> and we were sitting on a panel, and I was just, again, so impressed with him. And we became friendly, you know, it's not friends. We didn't hang out and go out and eat dinner together and have beers and things like that. But we became friendly and we'd communicate back and forth and guys started listening to the podcast 83 weeks. And th this past summer, I've kind of lost track of time. Uh, early in this early last summer guy called me and said, Hey, I listened to your podcast and I, I hear a pattern in a lot of things that you talk about and you constantly referring to grateful. And I, I hear a very subtle message in your podcast that I find to be unique. Would you be interested in digging into that a little bit more and possibly writing a book? And my first reaction was very similar to my reaction for the first book when I was approached to do that. I was like, eh, eh. you know, I do a podcast. Like, people listen to me two and a half hours a week. What do they want to read about? Well, and, and Guy said, no, I, I think that if we focus on, yeah, we'll cover wrestling. Let's, Let's pick up where Controversy Creates Cash left off. Controversy Creates Cash was a pretty popular book. It made the New York Times bestseller list. Bestseller list. It did okay. But that was 2006. And a lot of things have happened since 2006. So guys said, let's just cover your experience in wrestling as the background. But let's really think and talk about how learning to be grateful has changed your life. And when he said that, it just clicked because that's such an important part of my life, particularly over the last five years, not so much before, but the last five years I've learned how to be grateful. Like the hard way, right. <laughs> not right. the easy way. <laughs> I didn't read a book and go, Oh, okay. I'm going to do that. Right. Right. I, I, I got drugged into that learning experience, kicking, screaming and bleeding yeah. actually. And once we started that process, I got so excited about it because it, started talking about things that I had never talked about before. I had thought about them, but I had never articulated them. That's how it started, man. It's, uh, it's incredible, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that guy had that same thought process. It's one of the things I think about, even when I listen to what felt like a really painful conversation in some aspects about, you know, your limited time as the executive, you know, producer of, of SmackDown. Um, you know, the four months that you were there and, and you're talking about mm -hmm. the things that were happening and, and it was a fantastic episode. But I could hear a sense of, at the same time you're talking about some of the things that happened, there was also that air of, I'm just happy to be here. And I think that really traveled through in the book where you're just like, I'm grateful to have this experience. I'm grateful I learned something from it. And I think that really shines in this book as well. Um, was there ever a time that you were sort of maybe not off put, but nervous about some of, because you go pretty deep into some, into some topics here um, that I haven't heard you talk about before. 
was there ever a time where you shied away from something that you spoke about? Or was there ever a time where you're like, ma, that's, that's not something I really want to discuss here. Or did you think with this book now is the time to talk about it? No, I didn't hesitate at all. I didn't even give it any thought, to be honest with you. When, when guy, and part of that is because guy's really good at what the guy does, you know, because he's so elegant. And I know that sounds like a weird word to describe another guy. Right. But he approaches his art form as a writer with a degree of elegance that creates a degree of comfort in, at least it did in me during the course of an interview. So I always felt like I, and because I knew him and because I trusted him, you know, if I sit down with somebody I know and I trust, you know, I don't care. I, I learned a long time ago, man, not, 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 well, I shouldn't say a long time ago within the last five years, I've learned to not worry about what people think. And it took me a long time to, to get to that point, but I never had, I never, I, we never sat through an interview where I felt like, okay, I'm pulling down my pants. I'm showing everybody my ass here. I don't normally, normally do that, but I, and, and then we'd go through that interview and then hang up the phone. And an hour later, I never had that feeling like, you know, what? I'm going to call him back and just ask him to just tweak this a little bit differently. And he'll tell you that never happened. There was one, there was a reference or, or a short part of a paragraph at, at one point that I did think might create a legal situation. Mm. Um, and I wanted to be on the safe side of that. So I did, I didn't, I didn't tell him to take it out because that would be wrong too. He's the writer. And, but I did point out why I felt like that might be a little risky and I gave him an alternative and I let it up. I let it be up to him whether he wanted to modify what he wrote. Or not. And that was the only time, but that was because of a legal, a potential legal risk, not because I was embarrassed or anything. Right. I, uh, I wanted to talk about too. I wanted to transition into one of the things that really sticks to me is um, you told the story about Amanda in the book. And mm. the reason that I mentioned this is because uh, my son and I met you in 2022. We came to icons in Philadelphia um, and my son is a wrestling fan now. He's grown up with me. You know, he we started him watching on you know the or the uh, the golden era with Hogan and Earthquake and Andre the Giant. And I had mentioned, you know, I said, oh, we got to watch WCW because this is some of the greatest stuff that's ever been done, right? Like it's it's just and you know just a magical time in the '90s. And we had spoken about you being on my show, you know, in 2021, uh, which is in the archives. You could check it out at FoundationRadio.net. And we're in icons and we're walking around. And I said to him, I said, buddy, who do you want to go? Who do you want to talk to? You know, was anybody you want to go see? And he says, well, I know Eric Bischoff is here and I'd really like, really like to meet him. And one of the things that stuck out to me was what you mentioned in the book about the way that Hulk Hogan talks to people. He's always very, you know, approachable. He's very happy. He's very, (laughs) takes his time with people. And I got that impression from you. You make a lot of that, a lot of those references on your show. You know, it's it's about the way you judge people and the way that they treat others, especially your children. And I do the same thing. And the way you treated my son, it was just like, wow, he's someone that really cares about the people who he's inter- interfacing with. Tell me what about Amanda stuck with you so deeply, and tell me more about the relationship that you cultivated with that. Yeah, I, I won't go into it too in depth because it's in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not that I want to, you know, hide anything. So hopefully people read the book, but it's well, kind of a long yeah. story. Yeah. And look, I, I met Amanda. Now I got to back up during over the course of the last five or six years. Um, 
financially, I, I've never hit rock bottom, but I bounced off of it enough that I can describe it to you pretty well. And I found myself probably seven years. And I found myself in a position where I started doing autograph signings and conventions and personal appearances and things. And, and I didn't do them because I wanted to do them. I did them quite honestly, because I had to do them financially. I had to do them. And I, I, first off, I resented the fact that I had to do something that I didn't really want to do, but I was forced to do it because of my own stupidity put myself in a situation that now I'm doing something that I really didn't want to do. And I would go to these different independent events and I, I would do my best when I was there to, cause I understand, you know, people paid money they come, they're excited. I've seen you on TV for a while and then I get to talk to you. I get that. And I've always been, I've always acknowledged that. I've always tried to treat people as well as I could, but deep down inside, you know, I wanted to kick my own ass for putting myself in that position. And there was an, there was a, an event that I went to in New Mexico, like just a random independent show. And that was like the first time a light bulb kind of went off in my head where I went, you know, and I drove from Scottsdale, Arizona to Albuquerque because these people couldn't afford to fly me. Right. But I just said, I'm going to do it. Cause I like road trips. I threw my dog in a truck with me. It was just me and my dog driving through the Southwest. It was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I got to this event and I saw I walked into the, to the venue before any, any of the performers or anybody really saw me backstage. And I just stopped and I was watching. And I'm, I saw such genuine joy, lack of a better word. I don't know what the better word is, but joy. And, and it was kind of like this naive energy and everybody was having fun. And, and it reminded me of the way I felt about being in the wrestling business my third day on the job. Yeah. I would walk into the office and, you know, if somebody said, Hey, you had to take the garbage out today. I know you're, you know, we hired you for sales and syndication and, you know, sponsorship development, but the garbage is full and you need to take it out. It'd be like, yeah, take out <laughs> the garbage, the AWA, you know, yeah. it was such a, a magical time for me having grown up as a wrestling fan and now to be in the business at, at any level was like so exciting. And I saw that in the faces of these kids that were getting ready to go out and perform in front of 200 people. And that was the light bulb. And I just went, mm. and then fast forward. Now I'm at a comic con in Phoenix and I'm hosting a panel with Hulk Hogan and sting. And I'm the moderator. I'm taking questions, right. Mm. And, and helping to manage that process. That's all I really was. And occasionally I would get a question, but at the end, it's like a 45 minute session, an hour session at the very end of it. This young lady, she's probably 28 years old, 26, whatever. I could barely see her, but I could, she had a microphone, I could hear her. And she told me this story about how her and her father grew up watching Nitro, like every Monday night, that was their thing. And that was the only real father-daughter time they had during the week. Father had other issues and he was a hard worker, but, you know, had some baggage and blah, blah, blah but she's talked about how much that meant to her. And then it went from a light bulb to like, it hit me like a truck. It's like, wow, what, what I've done for the last 30 years has actually touched people. It's actually shaped lives. Cause I never thought about that before. Mm-hmm. 
I never even considered that could be a possibility. And when she told that story so passionately, it moved me. Like it brought a tear to my eye in front of 1500 people and two guys that I respect. And, but that was it. It was over. You know, she asked her question of Hulk or Sting or whatever. And then I, you know, that was it. About two weeks later, my wife and I are sitting home here in Wyoming watching television. It's in the evening. My wife gets an email. It's from Amanda. Just very coincidentally, my wife used to teach at a center um, that Amanda was a student in. So Amanda knew that and she found my wife and found her email and sent my, my wife an email. And in that, and I'm going to start crying. This I just, every freaking time I tell this story, I'm embarrassed myself, but she sent this email to my wife explaining that she was getting married soon and that her father who had since passed away and her mother had already passed away and she had no brothers and sisters. She had no family, but she's getting married. Damn it. And she said, since my father, the only real time I had with my father and the only time we really bonded was for Nitro and he loved Nitro and he loved the NWO. When Eric walked me down the aisle, that was her request. So my wife's reading this to me. She got to that part and I said, yes, we're doing this. Where, where, where is she getting married? Cause it didn't matter to me if she would have said Florida or Washington state or whatever, Nebraska, I didn't care. I didn't ask my first, okay, we're doing that. Right. Cause it touched me in a big way. And then she goes, Oh, it's in Minneapolis. Well, I, my brother and sister live in Minneapolis and my wife's family all live in Minneapolis. So what did we do? We loaded up the truck and the dog and we drove to Minneapolis and I walked her down the aisle and it meant so much to me, but that, that event was called it an incident, like a car wreck in a corner, but that event <laughs> really changed me a lot because up until that point, Adam, I, I had a lot of different feelings about the past 30 years of my life in the wrestling business. A lot of it was great. But a lot of it wasn't. And, and one of the reasons I didn't like doing personal appearances and things is because there's always that question. What about the finger broken dude? You know, oh God, like, yeah. Man, that, was actually, that was actually next on my question list, so I can just cross yeah, that off right I'm now. Sure yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> but that, what happened with Amanda changed me, and it made me realize that it's not about the NWO and being number one in the wrestling business, you know, for a couple of years and beating Vince McMahon for 83 weeks or the finger poke of doom, or it's not about any of that. It's about the fact that I was able to be a part of something that affected so many people in such a profound way and shaped their lives. And from that point forward, I looked at everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, completely differently. It changed the way I looked at myself and my involvement in the business. And around that same time, I started doing a podcast with Conrad. And this is really the life-changing moment, right? This is what sent me forward in, in learning how to be grateful. 
was the combination of the experience with Amanda and doing the podcast. Because if, if you go back and listen to the first couple episodes of the podcast, I was very defensive. Conrad was doing what Conrad should have done, which is speaking for the fans, asking questions that the fans want to ask, not putting me over and telling me how smart I was and how talented I was and how funny I am, or that's not his job. His job is to be the voice of the fans. And he did. And my first reaction was to tuck my chin, put my hands up and figure out how to fight back. Cause that's my nature. I grew up that way and I've been that way all my life. And I was very defensive. And if you listen to the first couple of podcasts, it's like, Ooh, that. And we got into it one day, Conrad and I got into a, a debate one day and it, it was real. It wasn't for entertainment. It was real. So real that this, we basically just shut the episode down. You know, we were able to publish it, mm-hmm. but it came to an abrupt halt. And I hung up over from recording and I called Conrad back and we had a chat. It's Conrad, we can't, you, you can be pissed off at me all day long if you want, or I can be pissed off at you all day long if I want, but let's not let the show suffer as a result. Let's not ever let it get so bad that we distribute a crappy show. Right. Because of it. And I hung, yeah, yeah, okay. He was so pissed at me, but we hung up and then I, I sat down and I said, okay, what do I need to change? What is it about me? Cause I'm a hundred percent in control of me. I can make me do anything I want me to do. But if I don't think about the things that I can change to improve the situation, and I'm only looking at what other people can do to accommodate me so that there's a change, that's not good. And I sat down and I had a really honest conversation with myself and I realized that I was being defensive. And then you start listening to the next several episodes after that. And I, I started embracing the finger poke of doom. I started making fun of myself. I started having fun with it instead of being defensive about it. I became grateful for it because now here I am 25 years later, having fun and making money discussing it. Right. What have I got to be pissed off about? You know? Yeah. So it was, it was like Amanda in the podcast and maybe the incident in New Mexico, all of those things just kind of, you know, beat me over the head. Cause I'm a stubborn fuck when I want to, well, whether I want to or not, I am, but it just became overwhelming. And I went, okay, I got to start looking at life a little differently. And those two things really mattered and it had a profound effect on me. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I know listening to the show, I can tell that you're a really, you're a great sport about the things that Conrad says, because there's a lot of stuff he says, well, you know, that the, you know, to be the man, you must be tan and all the fun catchphrases <laughs> you guys have. And you know, all the shit you've had to eat over the course of the years from him talking to you. And it's a, it's a fantastic show. Like 83 weeks is one of the podcasts I listen to every day on my, you know, every Monday on my way to work, it's always on. One thing that always does stick into me while I'm listening to it though, is, is the, the level of business acumen and the speech from places of knowledge over the course of your career. Cause I feel like in some aspects you've almost lived parallel timelines, right? You're a, you're a, you're a wrestling promoter. You're the, the executive producer of, of nitro. You're the guy who lit the wrestling world on fire, but you're also an executive behind the scenes, right? There's a lot of that, as you call it, granular business that goes on that not many people are aware of. And I used to think to myself, man, I wish he would have a show where he just talks about the business behind of what he does. And that's where Strictly Business with John Alba came into play. And recently, right. I've, I've found myself really listening 
almost, you know, for lack of a better word, strictly to your show when it comes to things like the sale of, you know, potential sale of WWE or uh, the CM Punk, you know, brawl out incident, because you talk about all of these different things from a business standpoint that I don't think anybody else would necessarily think of or really have the position to speak from. Um, how much fun do you guys have doing the show and how different is it for you to be able to take a look at, you know, different look uh, behind the lens in the business sense when it comes to strictly business? I'm far, I have much more, I have fun doing 83 weeks, 83 weeks, you know, the brand 83 weeks is really, it's a nostalgia based show. We, we very rarely talk about current events. Now the last two episodes we have, the episode that dropped this morning is I think one of the better episodes I've ever done either for 83 weeks or for strictly business, because I, I spent the last week doing a ton of research into the process of either acquiring a publicly held company or selling a publicly held company, because it is a far more complex and intriguing process than anybody that's talking about it knows at this point. And that enabled me to have a level of discussion this past week on 83 weeks that I think no one in the wrestling business will ever, will be able to touch. Um, and I don't think even people like CSNBC or CNBC or MSNBC or, you know, Barron's magazine, all these people that are, you know, they're touching on it. Right. But I went into a level of detail because of the research I was able to do that makes that picture so much more interesting. But typically, yeah, Conrad and I on 83 Weeks, we're talking about basically the Monday Night War era in the stories and some of the business the behind the scenes. But strictly business, it's, it was fun because that's what I love to talk about is the business of the wrestling business. You know, I don't have stories about, you know, being on the road with, you know, this ex-wrestler and, you know, the fight that got, you know, went down at Denny's or, you know, who crapped in whose, you know, gear bag, you know, in the locker room in 1984, you know, I don't have that kind of stuff. I wasn't a wrestler. I didn't go up and down the road. I don't have those really funny stories. Bruce Pritchard has a mom, tons of them, but I don't. I have a unique perspective because while I was an on-screen performer, 90% of my job was running a $350 million company that was part of a public enterprise. And you learn a lot in that. And, and I had to, you know, I, I was deeply entrenched in the ad, ad sales part of the business. I was deeply entrenched in, in the finance side of it. I was deeply entrenched in the licensing and merchandising. So I have far more experience in a broader spectrum of the business of the wrestling business than anybody that's got a podcast right now. You know, I can't talk about ring psychology. I can talk about what I like, but I'm not a wrestler. I can't have those conversations. But if you want to talk about the business of the business, kind of your guy. And until Vince McMahon decides he wants to do a podcast, I'm going to be the only guy. Because nobody else out there, and, you know, Chris Jericho's got a great podcast. Conan's got a great podcast. They all have got great podcasts. But none of them have ever been in my seat and don't know what I know. Right. So I, I I said, hey, let's do a, for pay, you know, for behind the paywall as a part of the ad-free shows block. I said, I'm just going to do a show called Strictly Business because I, it's just fun. Right. I didn't get paid for it. I didn't make any money off of it. It was just fun. I enjoy it. So we did it. And when the, the response was so overwhelming that we said, well, wait a minute, maybe this has got enough legs that it could be its own podcast. Mm -hmm. So we spun it off 
from behind the paywall to, to be available as a free podcast. And the response has been amazing. Like the request for interviews that I've gotten from people outside of the wrestling world because of strictly business and the way we approach it is it, like, this is awesome. Yeah. You know, so that's how it came about. It, again, it's a great, it's a great listen. I was actually, I just wrapped up listening to the most recent 83 weeks episode before I jumped on here. And again, like I would be remiss not to talk to you at least briefly about, um, you know, we just discussed, you know, Mr. Meltzer, our dear friend, uh, and the dragging, the proverbial <laughs> dragging he's been receiving the past week or so on Twitter. Boy, watching Dave get his, uh, <laughs> watching him get his comeuppance has been, uh, has been frankly marvelous. And I know you probably really enjoy it. So, um, it's uh, it's I have a hard time with people who just report things without really like just diving deep in any way possible. Right. A friend of mine is his name is Robert Costa. He's a reporter for CBS. And I can't imagine him going on CBS News on the nightly news and being like, yep, here's a story about Joe Biden or, and Donald Trump. And oh, I, I the, the reason I know about this is because I got the news from the guy down the hall. That, you know, like I just, I can't imagine why somebody would ever, anybody would ever take Dave at face value for anything at this point going forward. They shouldn't. And here's, you know, for, for decades now, people in the business <clears throat> that have been critical of Dave Meltzer, you know, most notably in, you know, the last couple of years because of podcasts, right? Right. You know, myself, obviously, Bruce Pritchard, John Layfield, you know, back before he passed Gary Hart. I mean, there's been a number of people and, 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 you know, a lot of people haven't spoken out because they just don't feel it matters, but there's been a number of people in the industry that has known what Dave's all about for 30 years. Right. He hasn't, first of all, I think he's, he's some kind of a strange personality to begin with. He's got some serious needs and, and whatever. I'm not a psychiatrist, but he uses his platform and has used his platform for 30 or more years to kind of insert himself into an industry he knows nothing about. Right. And he did enough actual work in aggregating legitimate information, attendance numbers, buy rates, things that are actually available in the public domain. You don't have to be, you know, an insider to find that information, but you have to spend a lot of time and know where to look. And Dave, Dave actually did the work to, to accomplish, you know, being able to aggregate that and include it in his new letter, which newsletter, which gave him a certain level of credibility because he was provide, providing reasonably accurate information because the, the information he got was often, you know, spun, right. but that's media in general. It's, it's kind of forgivable. You know it. Right. But you, kind, you have to have that context going into it, knowing like, okay, some, some of this is going to be puffed up a little bit. Right. Yeah. You know, like attendance figures, you know, right. a, a ven, a, you know, an arena or a venue is always going to pump up their, their numbers because they want to be an attractive venue for other events. Right. right. So they, you know, that information that's reported today was spun before he got it. But that happens every day. But Dave did do the work to aggregate some of that information, which gave him the appearance of credibility because he was providing information that other people were, you know, too lazy or just not interested enough to go find. So he was kind of like a one-stop shop for that kind of information. But then he started and has always, as long as I can remember, reported his opinion as fact. Right. And his opinion is very biased. He has an agenda. If he has friends in the business 
that are leaking him information, he's just going to print it. He's going to just, he's not going to check it. He's not going to verify it because he's lazy. He is indeed a useful idiot in the, in the, the literal definition of the word. Right. He is a vessel that other people use to get their narrative out into the public domain within the wrestling world. And that's what Dave has always been. And I, you know, and I'm thinking, I was thinking about this right before we got on. Not that I think I didn't think we'd be talking about it. I didn't know if we would, right. but you know, the whole issue that punk had with the AEW yeah. was born from what I've read. I don't know this as a fact, but just knowing what I've read, you know, the the Bucks and, and and certain people within AEW and some of whom were officers of the company, right? Were feeding information to Dave because Dave is friends with the the elite yeah. because they tap him on the head and give him a cookie and make him feel good, or they named a finishing move after him. And that's all it takes with a, with a with a with a guy like Dave Meltzer. You <laughs> pet him on the head and do something for him, make him feel part of the team, and he'll do anything you want for him for you, but they were feeding information that created that issue and that, that incident. And I'm just wondering if they will end up being, you know, part of any lawsuit that comes about. Cause if I'm CM Punk and I really believe that this all started as kind of an internal um, effort to disparage me or, and I'm no fan of CM Punk by the way. Right. Right. So I'm not defending anybody here. I'm just looking at this for what it is. And if I'm punk and I'm punk's attorney, I'm, I'm going to look into this because the, what, what, and it's funny before this started, you know, Dave did a thing, a video with figure four online with his partner, Brian Alvarez, oh, <laughs> a little twit. I know. Right. <laughs> I the only, there's, and, and you gotta, you gotta look at this sit down that, that they had. And Dave says, man, I can't believe, you know, I was hoaxed. And I responded to that immediately right before we got onto this. I said, dude, you weren't hoaxed. You were exposed. There's a difference. Yeah. And you got caught doing the same thing you've been doing for 30 years. And you got caught like hand in a cookie jar, smoking gun. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. Yeah. You got exposed for what you are. You weren't hoaxed. Right. Nobody pulled the wool over your eyes, man. They gave you, no, they fed you some if, shit. Yeah. If he had any integrity whatsoever, you know, if he wasn't the useful idiot that, that, everybody knows he is now. And if he wasn't lazy and sloppy and incompetent, that would have never happened. He literally cut and pasted something that somebody sent him and included it in his newsletter. If I subscribe to Dave Meltzer, I want my money back for however many years I've been subscribing to him. I would sue him. um, I'd want my money back because he misrepresented himself as a journalist and he's not. And I think that's an important point of it too. I, I, you know, going back just to, for a second to the CM Punk thing, one of the first things I, I remember thinking in my head as I was watching that press conference go down, you know, I'm watching CM Punk, I'm watching his reaction. It's very visible, visceral. It's very angry. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy's got a, a problem with someone other than the Young Bucks, right? And someone other than Kenny Omega. It seems as though it's stemming a lot of this from things that have been said about him or a narrative that has been presented about him. I don't know CM Punk. I've never met the guy. I've never interfaced with him in any way whatsoever. But it felt like a lot of the things that he was saying during that reaction period were a result of information that had been given to the media. And my first thought was, what's Meltzer's culpability in this entire situation? Because now you have an actual fist fight. You have a real physical altercation between... And, and, and injuries that occurred during that, that fight. Exactly. I mean, you know, not for anything, like 
from what they've said, Kenny Omega got bitten on the arm. CM Punk's injury could have been exacerbated because like there was a, a host of things that we probably don't even know about what happened too. And my first thought was Meltzer's culpable in this and the Wrestling Observer is culpable in this because if they are presenting this information and they're presenting it as fact to their readers and then it's getting, like you said, aggregated and distributed to a wide network of people because they all use Twitter, they all use these sites, they know how to push this content, they know how to get people to talk about it. No one's fact-checking this, no one's sourcing it, they're just saying, oh yeah, well, Kenny Omega said. Well, that's not how anything works here, you know? And again, like, people have, like, I know you have a, a legitimate gripe with CM Punk and... Uh, you know, I have my feelings on him as well, but it's also like, at what point do you stop and look at the situation and say, there's something really uh, like deeper going on with this, not just about Meltzer, but wrestling media in general. Like what can be said about this situation? Because everybody kind of has blood on their hands when it comes to this. And with, yeah, it's difficult when you're a public figure as punk is, as I am, you know, when you put yourself out there on camera and you're making, making a living in the public, you know, it's really hard from a legal perspective, but I think in this case, what makes it interesting is the fact that because the young bunks are officers, they hold an officer position um, within AEW and they used Dave Meltzer to propagate information that was negative and all of that led to this incident. Like I said, if I'm punk's attorney, I'm going to look at this a little bit differently. This isn't like defamation you can't, there's, you can't go anywhere with defamation right. when you're a public figure, but you can in this particular case. And I don't know if there's a lawsuit pending or going on, or I don't know. Maybe right. they're all really best friends behind the scenes and Punk's going to get a payday and go about his business and sign an NDA, and that'll be the last we ever heard of it. What if there's, you know, potential litigation down the road? I think this situation and the fact that Dave Meltzer is exposed for being nothing but a useful idiot people that don't know what it means google it because it's a definition of dave Meltzer and his dirt sheet as far as the young bucks and kenny omega being in the officers i know there's been a lot of conversation about whether they should have stayed in their position after this happened right because all of the all of the conversation was about whether or not cm punk was going to come back and whether he should be stripped of his title and you know the whole the whole nine but no one really focused on the fact that these guys are still, while they might not be on TV, and yeah, they had the trios titles stripped from them as if that even mattered in the first place. Who cares? Who gives a shit, right? It doesn't do anything, right? Like, it's another set of belts that we have to worry about and keep up with. But they didn't care about in the first place. Right, right. And it's like, no one cares, right? But at the end of the day, they're still officers of the board. They still have financial and, you know, corporate responsibilities inside of the organization that oversees AEW, whether whatever the, you know, the actual name is called. Would you have said to them in your position, and this is sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, but like in your position, if you had been Tony Khan at that point, would you have said you're fired or conversely, would you have even put them in a position at the very beginning to say, hey, you guys are going to be officers, even though you're going to be on screen talent? No, I mean, I mean, the whole I mean, none of these guys have any corporate experience whatsoever. None of them have ever run a Kool-Aid stamp, right? They have all the business acumen of my son when he was 12 and he was mowing lawns in the neighborhood. Right. Right. These are not, these are not business people. And that's not a criticism. It's just an observation for crying out loud. Right. You know, nobody expects a, a, a talented performer to also hold an MBA right. or have corporate business experience. It's just silly. It was, it was a silly choice. It, it was a vanity title. It wasn't necessary, but, you know, I'm a vice president of AEW. 
I'm an officer. It was a stupid decision in the first place by Tony. It was a childish, immature move to begin with on both parties. And now it's coming back to bite him in the ass because there are ramifications in situations like this. If this goes, if this, if this becomes litigation, this is going to be such a mess. It's uh, I can't even imagine what I guess even the due diligence process would look like inside of that. Because again, you know, I mean, you've been in corporate, I work in corporate in my, my day job. I know how it works. Everything in writing. We got to have meetings with meetings and, and people with asset managers and people who have fancier titles than me. Everybody's got a stake in this. And the fact well, that, you, you know, here's what's going to be interesting if it goes to litigation and, and especially if Meltzer's tied into it with, with the Bucks or whoever, um, is the discovery process. Yes. Because in discovery, you're going to see emails, you're going to see texts, you're going to see all kinds of things that are going to reveal the true nature of that relationship. And look, at the end of the day, it may reveal nothing. And all of this is just speculation. But if there's a smoking gun in that Bucks punk situation and Meltzer's implicated, that's going to come out in discovery. And it remains to be seen at this point. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. There, there's been a lot of chatter about Bix, you know, as a hit piece. And I didn't see it as a hit piece. I saw it as accountability, which, you know, in another timeline, we can talk about conversations on accountability, not just in media, but in politics and everywhere else. Wrestling, you could talk about these things of accountability. And I think that's what happened with Meltzer. But one of the things that I, I was really frustrated about uh, was the Saudi Arabia news where the sale, you know, there was a, a backdoor sale of the, to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and it popped up because someone on Reddit had leaked the news and it felt like nobody had really sourced it. No one had taken the time to look into this information and, and just verify whether or not it was credible for more than about 10 seconds. Because if you know even just a minute piece of business when it comes to a publicly traded company, you would understand that something like that just couldn't happen overnight. And no. I wanted to get I wanted to get your take on that, and I wanted to kind of get your feedback on this explosive news. And I compared it to a lot. You know, I, I do a show with with Blue Meaning called Mind of the Meaning, and we talked about it a little bit. I compared the sale of a publicly traded company to what Elon Musk did with Twitter. Elon Musk came in and said, "Hey, I'm going to give you fifty four dollars a share, which was forty four billion dollars." Right? Twitter has a responsibility not just to their board and their shareholders, but also to the SEC to report and say, hey, we just received this bid from this government now, or this, this entity, and now we have to go into, you know, letter of intent, like what you spoke about, what happened with Fusion Media and WCW, and then there's all these different processes that happen. So what was your first thought when that news took off and you heard the Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, breaking news, if you will? I think it was in the evening, it was late in the evening when I first saw it. It may have come out earlier in the day, and I just didn't see it until really I was about ready to go to bed, to be honest. And I, th I think that's when I was. But my first reaction wasn't analytical. I didn't say to myself, well, that can't possibly be. You cannot possibly you know, conclude a transaction that quickly. And I thought, well, somebody's just jumping the gun Perhaps there's an interest. Perhaps there's even a letter of intent. A letter of intent doesn't mean anything. Right. Letter of intent just basically says, okay, we're going to date. Right. And you're going to pay for the first date. I'm going to pay for the second date. You go through these things and, okay, this is, you agree to a framework of a, dis, of a further negotiation is all that is. Right. 
means nothing. It's it's a non-binding document, right? Unless it's a binding letter of intent. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a whole separate. Yeah, it's a whole separate ball that's of wax. They, yeah. So my first thought was, ah, uh, somebody's jumping the gun. They, they may announce that they're going to start negotiating tomorrow, because I think the the the, the implication was that the <clears throat> it, news came out on a Monday and it was going to be announced on a Tuesday or something mm-hmm. like that. So I thought maybe somebody just jumped the gun. But then the more I thought about it within that context of somebody just jumping the gun is I hope it's not true because I know what the backlash would be. You know, it just would. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to comment on whether it's justifiable or not. It doesn't matter. But I knew that it would exist. And then I started as I'm going to bed that night, I'm thinking, okay, what, what if, because that's how I usually analyze things. I start up by going, okay, what if it's true? What if it actually happens and how is it going to affect things? And my first thought was, man, I don't know if it's going to affect the licensing rights or not. The media rights, because, because of the politics and the public sentiment, there is a chance in today's environment because we all know how sensitive big corporations are to social media backlash, Mm -hmm. there is a chance that it could possibly have an adverse impact on media rights. So that was my thought process without thinking about it too much. And then I woke up in the next morning because I, you know, had a good night's sleep. I went, wait a minute, this is stupid. There's no way this deal's going down this quickly. When I was a part of Fusion Media's attempt to buy WCW from Turner Broadcasting, our due diligence window was like four months. You can't, it's not like buying a car at an auction for crying out loud. Right. You can't even close on a house if you want to buy one that quickly. Right. You've got to, you've got to have the banks got to come in and they got to do an appraisal and the guy's got to come in and see if you got termites in the wall. And I mean, mean, there's a process involved in even buying a piece of property that you couldn't possibly achieve in a 24 hour window. And when I went, no, this is just some idiot. Put you know a dot here, a dot there. Oh, I'm going to connect two dots and create a three dimensional picture. Right. That's exactly what that was. I uh, I had a lot of reservations. I guess that's where my mind went first. Was just thinking about the fact that it moved so quickly. You know, like I said, I I, I have a you know a separate job outside of what I do here in the media, and I've been through a sale process where we've. It, you know, I've been part of a system where you have a multi-million dollar transaction on a, you know, a high-rise building in Philadelphia. The level of due diligence that they went through is just insane for that level of money. I mean, you're talking about maybe, you know, $150, $200 million. We're talking about a $6 billion corporation, one of the largest a pub- a, a publicly, publicly traded, company. right? Like, we're talking about a massive infrastructure that just on its face value is, is just unbelievable. So my first, and I, I, I've been looking forward to asking you that question. I just, I can't imagine when you sit down, you're finally like, well, that doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> like there's just, there's just absolutely no way that that would have been possible. So. No. And, and here's, you know, and, and you mentioned, you listened to this week's 83 weeks uh, mm-hmm. today. You know, there's another thing. Now I didn't, I didn't know this last Monday when I heard the news. And again, I was reaction. I was reacting when I went, was going to bed. I was reacting purely on emotion, right? I wasn't analyzing anything. Right. I was just purely reacting viscerally to the news because I was afraid it might have an adverse effect on the, on the industry across the board. Right. So 
again, I woke up, I was like, this is stupid. And what I learned over the course of the last few days is that any foreign entity, not just the Saudis, nobody's picking on the Saudis in this right, statement. Right. But any foreign entity that wants to acquire an American company has got a whole bunch of other hoops they got to jump through with the SEC and antitrust laws. That process, I can, because now you're dealing with the government. Right. That process is going to take a long time. If they're going to acquire and own a foreign, or a foreign entity wants to own an American entity. So, again, I didn't know that last Monday, but the more I dig into it, the more research I do, the more ridiculous that statement that was released and leaked was or right. that went public was because it's just, it's, it's childish. <laughs> Uh, one thing to tie up the, the interview, um, it's something I read in grateful. That was just sort of a quick comment that you made. Um, it said that you were, you were, a, uh, you have a lifelong passion for photography. And I was curious, what was the first film camera that you used? Uh, and if you still develop your own film? No, I don't. You know, I, I did for a long time. You know, I was introduced, I, I was a horrible student in high school. The only reason I went to high school, and by the way, I only went from about October to March because that was the wrestling season and I loved, I was on a wrestling team. I, I just loved it. I was never really very good at it. I was decent. I made varsity and all that stuff, but I would, I, I, I just loved it. And that was the only reason I went to school. I held two part-time jobs throughout my entire senior year. And I usually would put in between those two jobs, 35, 40 hours a week. Wow. So school was just something I only did during wrestling season. And when I did go, um, photography and history were really the only two classes in German. I took German. I love foreign languages. I just, I just love learning about cultures and things. So there was three classes that I excelled in photography, German, and history. Everything else, I basically, I didn't go. This is like 1973, right? And if, if people think it's like everybody's, you know, schools, you know, they're letting people graduate. They're giving them, you know, participation trophies and ribbons. Guess what? That was my high school, right? You gotta remember, it's the 70s, it's hippies. It's it, 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 it. And I, I have no idea why I graduated from high school because I never went. <laughs> but I was introduced to photography and I, I don't, I, mean, I remember it was a Canon, mm-hmm. you know, um, 35 millimeter camera that I had because I bought it used. Um, and I do remember that. I didn't have any, uh, I did have multiple lenses for it. I had one, I think it was 10 to 35 millimeter or something like that. <clears throat> variable lens. Um, bought it for like 60 bucks. But, but I love, I was so fascinated with shooting my own. And I could only, I couldn't process color. I could mm-hmm. only develop black and white, but you know, in school we had, we had a dark room. It was, a, you know, it was a high school dark room and had a lot of stuff in it. It was new to me. I could go in there and take this roll of film and I could develop it and I could blow up eight by tens or five by sevens. I just loved it. And I, and I, I stuck with it for a long time, just as a hobby. You know, I never aspired to be a professional photographer, but I stuck with it as a hobby and an interesting story. And you know why I live where I live. You know, I live right outside of Yellowstone national park and I've had this house since 98. I came out here for the first time in 1977 when I was 22 four years after I graduated from high school and I had zero money. I had like $80 in cash in my pocket and I had two credit cards that combined had about $120 maximum limit on it. Right. And I had a four wheel drive pickup truck with a camper on the back, but I, 
I tore the little bathroom because the bathroom's, you know, small broom closet at best. So I just tore that out and I put in a dark room so that I could develop film in there. Cause I, my idea was I was going to drive out to Wyoming to meet a friend out here. I'd never been out West. I'd never been West of Minnesota. Hmm. And I grew up being fascinated with mountains and cowboys and Western history and native American history and all that. It, that was a passion for me at a very young age. So I'm all excited. I drive out to Wyoming. I'm, I barely had enough money to, to get to Wyoming from Minnesota where I drove. But anyway, I get out here and I, I got zero cash. Now my buddy, he was older than me. You know, he, he was able to, you know, keep me in food and beer, but um, I decided I was going to stay without a job, without any money. So I started going to the rodeo because they have a nightly rodeo here and have had for forever. And I would get up in the stands because one of the guys I was hanging out with at the time had access to kind of like the backstage area. So you could see down where the Cowboys are getting ready to get on the bulls or the horses, you know, you, you could see what's going on behind the scenes. So I'd, I'd get up, they call the rooster's nest. I get up at a rooster's nest and I, I'm taking pictures of my camera and, and taking pictures of the, the, the actual rodeo and, and the scenes behind it. And then next to the rodeo grounds, there was this really big bar called the bronze boot. Like literally you could hit it with a Frisbee from the rodeo grounds to where the big bronze boot was. You could hit it with a, you could walk over there easily. And that's where all the Cowboys and, and the fans of the Cowboys, including they call them buckle bunnies, you know, in wrestling, they're called ring rats and <laughs> in a rodeo, they're called buckle bunnies. <laughs> and as a 22 year old kid, I'm all about buckle bunnies. I'm good. I like it. <laughs> It was a target rich environment, as Tom Cruise said <laughs> in Top Gun. <laughs> but what, what, what I would do is I would take pictures during the rodeo, and I knew the Cowboys were all going to be in the Browns boot afterwards because they go over there and get drunk and fight and other things. <laughs> and so it, it didn't take me long. I developed, you know, the, the role of film or roles of film. I'd process it and I'd take a look and I'd say, oh, I know that guy. He's going to be over at the boot. Oh, this is a good picture. I'm going to go find this cowboy mm-hmm. or cowgirl because they, you know, they do the uh, barrel racing stuff. Anyway, I started doing that and I print these, I print off eight by tens and I take them over to the bronze boot. Now it took me about an hour, hour and a half to, to process and print these mm-hmm. things off and dry them. Right. Yep, yep. And by that time, all those cowboys that have been over there for an hour and a half have been drinking pretty good. So they got a buzz on. I go up to them and say, Hey, Bill, Joe, George, whoever. Sue, <laughs> take a look at this, man, 20 bucks, it's yours. And yeah. I'd sell them pictures of their ride and what was going on. And they were pretty good pictures. A lot of yeah. them were. And I would sell them and I'd sell six, eight, ten of them a night. I'm making $200 a night wow. drinking beer and going to the rodeo and hanging out at the bronze boot. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, time went on. I, and it, even then it was really a hobby. Yeah, uh, it, I, I just figured it would help me pay, pay my own way while I was out here for the summer. But I, I gave it up shortly after that, but I still enjoy it. You know, I take my dog out for a hike and we'll go up into the mountains or even just around where I live. And, you know, there's always a moment, you know, that you go, oh, I want to remember that moment. Yeah. It's not significant to anybody but me, but I want to remember that moment. And I'll, you know, I'll have some fun with it. I long maintain, um, I was very much the same way you were in high school, uh, history and photography were the only classes that I really ever enjoyed and ever paid attention in. Um, but there is something I feel like if you're going to be a photographer, I feel like you should have to learn the processes of a dark room because 
there's just something so fun and something so fulfilling about doing the work yourself. You know, it's easy to shoot with that digital camera when you're physically in there using your hands and the chemicals and everything else. It's just, it's just magic. So yeah. Even um, the smell, right? Yeah. There's, yeah. That, there's that smell. It's, it's not good. It's not bad. It's just, you know, that smell. If you, if you've yeah. developed your own film, you know exactly what that smell is like. And it's like, it just sends me right back to those moments. You're like, man, I really, I can't, I wish I had my own dark room here in the house. But um, Eric, I wanted to thank you again for your time and talking to me today about a, a multitude of things. Uh, where can everybody pick up grateful? I know it's out now, but where can everybody find it? You know, I'm, I'm horrible at this. I should know this off the top of my head, but it's it, Amazon is right. where you can buy it. And I think, uh, I'll post the, the link, you know, once you post this, yep. uh, I'll, I'll post the link as a response, but it's Amazon slash Eric slash grateful or something like that. I'm I, sorry. No, that's okay. I know it's at guy as well. You can go and pick it up. And yeah, I think and you could also, and you could go to bischoffbooks.com or bischoffbook.com and it will take you right to Amazon. And don't forget to check out 83 Weeks and Strictly Business. Uh, 83 Weeks is co-hosted by Conrad Thompson and Strictly Business is host, uh, co-hosted by my friend John Alba. Uh, you can check them out both right now at adfreeshows.com. You can sign up and get both of those shows early and ad-free. It's absolutely worth your while. Uh, Eric Bischoff, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to having you back on. Thank you, brother. Anytime. I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by Adam Barnard. The show is also produced by Sam Kreps. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Our intro and outro music is produced by Dumb Ugly. Find this episode and our full archive at foundationradio.net. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your favorite podcasts. This has been a Foundation Radio production. Butts Carlton, proprietor. Butts Carlton, proprietor.